Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Dennis Schuler. I'm the moderator of Ventapunk, Inflection Points for Senior Leaders. And I'm going to be joined in just a little bit by Sherry Maloof, who's a good friend of mine, who has run her own business and personal development for the last 30 some odd years. Uh, specifically, she's the chair and principal of Situation Management Systems, otherwise known as SMS. For over 30 years, Sherry has been a leader in the personal development space. During the last 20 years in particular, she has overseen SMS and its programs that have touched over 100,000 executives in public and private sectors across the globe and within many Fortune 500 companies. Formerly as president of SMS, Sherry championed new concepts, developed many training programs, and impacted thousands of people firsthand as an instructor and consultant with a focus on influencing and negotiating. Indeed, SMS has been the owner of the industry's crown jewel of influence programs, the Positive Power and Influence Program, which Sherry is shaped to be taught globally and virtually using today's technologies. Now, I have to say, um, I myself went through the training back uh, 30-some years ago, and I've trained this program for the last, uh, I think, probably 25 years. It is by far the best uh, training I went through. It's the only training I actually can recall that I find useful, even 25, 30 years later. And I hold uh, Sherry and her organization in high regard as a result. Now, Sherry is a lifelong learner, and she just completed her PhD in human development through the School of Leadership and Fielding Graduate University. She focused her research on a leader-follower relationship and developed the revolutionary concept of the implicit social elements, ISE. The ISE are the critical unconscious building blocks of every relationship, which can be used for the analysis and in turn, the transformation of teams and organizations to a higher level of achievement and contentment. After completing her PhD, Sherry has done further research and validated the ISE analytical tool. In her current role as chair and principal of SMS, Sherry is launching her ISE book called Science and the Leader Follow Relationship, along with supporting tools and training programs later this year. Further, with a newly formed SMS board of directors of like-minded industry leaders, she will continue to focus on shaping our industry and creating creative concepts that will energize organizations and people to achieve a new level of excellence, growth, and satisfaction. Sherry says it's interesting times right now with all the unrest and fear, not only my research, but my life experience is telling me that we all need to make more conscious choices in our interaction with others, hard conversations and managing our reactions to hard conversations, what we need to have, be having right now. Are you prepared to be present and to make conscious choices, quote unquote. So we're going to explore that and many other subjects as we get rolling here. Uh, Sherry, good seeing you. Welcome to the program. Anyway, Sherry, good seeing you. Welcome to Vendapunk. It's been quite a while. I'm really uh, happy to have you on board today and looking forward to uh, discussing various topics of interest that you and I will have and hopefully that the listening audience will as well. Yeah, I mean, Dennis, you and I always have a good conversation, so I think this will just be another one. All righty. All right, so I was interested to start with uh, kind of early years. Um, you know, I did the big company thing early in my life. Uh, don't, not sure why, but I did. My kids want nothing of it. They want to be entrepreneurs, which is kind of the path you've, you've taken. Did you know what you wanted to do with your life early on? Or were there people or events that kind of shaped the choices that you've made? I always had an interest in human beings and human growth and development. I mean, I was reading that stuff when I was a teenager. I think I started at 13 reading a whole range of writers, you know, that presented the human uh, sort of dilemma. Like I love Steinbeck, you know, I loved Steinbeck. And I, I was voluntarily reading that stuff when, like I said, when I was 13, 14 years old, um, I loved reading Gandhi's autobiography, um, you know, different uh, philo uh, philosophers and, and what they wrote, like uh, Uspensky. You know, this was all this stuff. Carlos Castaneda, you know, all of his drug stuff. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just interesting to me, human, uh, human beings. But um, I was going to be an artist. Yeah, I read that. And what, what prompted you to, uh, to pursue that? And then do you still practice it? Are you still able to? Um, so I actually went to one year of art school and I got kicked out. And I don't think there's a lot of people that can say they got kicked out of art school, but I got kicked out of art school. Right, there's a story. There's a story there. It can't be just that your art wasn't good. <laughs> well, um, yeah, there was some, I, 
I, I made some comments to people in charge that they didn't like. Uh-huh. So, so that was my early learning on street smarts. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I often think I've set up a drawing table. So I am now an empty nester and I set up a drawing table in one of the kids' old rooms, uh, but I haven't actually gone in and started doing it again. So I do, it's still a part of me. Uh, but I think that, that really it's that creative spirit. So as long as I'm creative, some creating something like, you know, I've already started on my next book, you know, so as long as I'm creating, I'm a happy person. And, and you happen to be one of the foremost experts on human development specifically, and you've devoted much of your working life to that, to studying human dynamics. Uh, what attracted you specifically to that field of study? And why is it so important to you? You know, I always wanted to connect with people. I always wanted to feel a strong connection. And I felt like people struggled to do that. You know, people, we struggle to have conversations. We struggle to connect with each other. We all need each other. We need love. We need connection. Um, we need to feel that we're a part of something. And so I always felt like I was struggling to get that with people. So I figured if I was struggling to get it with people, other people were. Um, and so that um, I just became interested in that. Good. And, um, you know, one of the, as I introduced you, I, I referenced uh, one of your crown jewels in your portfolio is this program, Positive Power and Influence. And I might tell you that that training was the best that I've, uh, I've ever attended. And of course, you know, I've trained it over 20 years with, with your shop. Uh, the thing I found uh, really interesting, you probably don't know this, the reason why I got into international roles at P&G is because of the training. Very few people wanted to go to Geneva to Villard to do the training. I go, I'll, I'll do that. And it got me interested in Europe which led to my UK assignment back in the eighties. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, the different stories people have from being in the program. I mean, it's been around for so long. We get people coming to us and go, you know, I went to this program 30 years ago. Now I want my people yeah. to go through. It really changed my life. It changed my job. It, it, I have my career because of this program. Yeah. Very, very and, um, right. Yeah. And can, can you give, because people won't know what it is, many on this little listening device, can you give a little bit of an overview of the model and how you developed it? And then, you know, it stood the test of time, but I also like to think about and ask you to think about uh, why is it in your mind and why other people that have gone through it have found it so impactful? Yeah. So, so the Positive Parent Influence Program teaches people a specific way of influencing other people and the core um, uh, way of looking at it is what energy are you using? Are you using push energy, pull energy, or are you moving away? So there's four influence styles. There's two with um, push energy, persuading and asserting, two with pull energy, bridging and attracting, and then there's tactics with the moving away energy. So how do you deal with conflict? And um, people are uh, fill out a questionnaire prior to going to the program on themselves and get other people to fill it out on them. And so they get a idea of their impact. And part of the reason why the program is so powerful is because people have what they intend to do in conversations and then they have their actual impact. And they don't always know that there's a difference there, especially if the relationship isn't strong. So we really emphasize you gotta get stuff done but you only get it done through relationships. So that's a very powerful piece of it. In, in addition, one of the impacts of this program is that it builds people's emotional intelligence. And we've been doing that for 40 years. So we were doing it before the book came out. You know, we've been talking about emotional intelligence for a very long time. Indeed. And I'm, I'm, I just like to take that a bit further because you've trained um, at least 100,000 plus uh, folks around the world. And that's a pretty large number. And I'm probably... I'm probably limiting that. You probably have touched more, more than that in your, your time training the program. I'd be curious in terms of what your observations are from the training, from around the world, what differences you've observed, what similarities, what lessons can businesses take away? So the, um, I think the biggest thing is over time, humanity is changing. <laughs> A lot of people don't think so, but 
as I've observed, people are more and more being accountable for their own reactions, which is huge. Um, because in the early days of delivering the program, everybody was a victim, you know, so-and-so is doing this to me, this person's doing this to me. And it's like, no, you know, you're reacting, you're in charge of how you react, your emotions are under your control. So, you know, how do you want to move forward with that? So I see over time, that's a big shift that has occurred. Um, and I also see people becoming a lot less resistant, a lot more open to understanding the impact they're having on other people. Um, but the key thing really is about relationships. And, and you know, that kind of led into my research, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, but um, really getting people to understand how critical relationships are and how you need to build on those relationships. And in most cases, it's, it's going to take pull behaviors to do that. And so many cultures rely on push energy to get things done. What's the data? I need this now. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. You know, I mean, there's... There's like this push out there in the business world. We got to get this done. We got to get this done, and they roll over people, you know. And so you get very unhappy people within organizations. You get people who feel they're abused. You get managers that are rewarded just because they've achieved a particular objective, but they don't care about all the dead bodies that are left behind. Mm -hmm. So a big piece of what we do is say, no, this isn't acceptable. No organization should ever tolerate. Uh, psychological abuse from managers just because they're a good performer. Yeah, right on. I, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you're a football nut, um, but I did post yesterday. I thought it was really good. Aaron Rodgers press conference. He's the Green Bay Packer quarterback. He had a rift with management during the off season and he did a 31 minute press conference, which ought to be required listening to management of others 101. Cause he talked about, listen, I've been the quarterback for 17 years. I feel like I have a right to be respected and involved in decisions that affect the team, to create a sense of belonging, to create the connectiveness that organizations have, the, the glue. Yeah. Uh, and he said that's at the source of it. It's not about money. It's about something else that's deeper, that's more meaningful. The relationships he had or he didn't with his front office management. Uh, I think about, um, and I wanted to ask you about this, about young people. Millennials who I think have grown up in the world of listen, if I feel respected, I'm, I'm doing something that's purposeful, that's important, sign me up. Then, but the, the point in time where I don't feel respect anymore, I'm, or if I'm working on something that really doesn't mean anything, off I go someplace else. And that's why there's so many help wanted signs in just about every place I go re recently, whether it's a restaurant or retail, is a help wanted sign. I think part of that is that manifestation, the lack of connection that companies have had, or in this case, haven't had with their employee base. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things that people need from the relationships with their manager and their, their upper levels. You know, I mean, it's <clears throat> in some ways, it, and I say this in my book, it's common sense. Come on, people want the respect. They want to have the trust, they want things to be fair. There's all kinds of things that we need to feel solid in our relationships with other people. And for millennials, one of the things that I understand from the work that I've done is respect is a big issue. And uh, they're very sensitive about um, feeling respected. And you know, you and I both came up through the ranks and we went through our thirties, you know, and people would completely discount everything we said. And that was just part of the process. Right. They're not going to take it. They don't care. I don't care if I look young. I have a valid uh, idea. You've hired me in. Listen to what I have to say. Yeah. You know, so. That is exactly right. Uh, Sherry, one of the other things when I went through the training again long, long ago when Moby Dick was a minnow, um, <laughs> part of the training I found helpful was uh, the whole concept of negative belief cycles. You can get into this doom loop. They can lead the blocks that prevent people from really performing at their peak. Given you've trained it over many, many, many cultures and over the years, what's the typical blocks you've seen? And do you have guidance about how to push through them? So, um, again, with more of the research that I'm doing and my deeper understanding of us as human beings and social beings, there's a lot of beliefs that we um, acquire through what we call socialization. 
So as we're growing up, we're taught, no, that's wrong. This is right. This is how you have to think, all this kind of thing. So we get all this stuff planted in us. And for the most part, for most people, it's unconscious. So we have these unconscious mechanisms working in our brain, making decisions, causing reactions, all this kind of stuff. And we're not even aware of what's going on. We just know that all of a sudden, I don't feel right about this. I don't like what that person's doing. I don't like what they said, but we might not get it back to exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. So we do have negative beliefs. So, you know, common ones um, for a lot of people, for example, is with asserting and uh, with saying, I want, right? Because for a lot of people, they are taught not to say, I want, especially if you're looking at individualistic versus, you know, the cooperative, the collaborative cultures. A lot of the collaborative cultures, some of them said they don't even want to have the pronoun, pronoun I in them anymore in the language, which is going a little bit far. Um, so a lot of people have been taught in childhood not to be selfish, that you'll hurt relationships if you tell people what you want. So we have this whole bunch of people out there trying to imply or use all the data or, you know, work all around just being direct and saying, hey, this is what I need from you. I know it's going to put you out. And so here's what I'll do for you in exchange. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people have this real negative thing. Even just the word asserting, yes. people will react to. Mm-hmm. So part of it is, is that you have to take a look at what's in you and your negative reactions to it. What's in your culture, because, for example, in the French culture, you can't say I want. You can say I would like, but you can't say I want. So you've got to look at your culture. Um, but you can assert and you can assert upwardly in any culture in the world if you're good enough at it. (laughs) So you just wait, you learn it, and then you practice it and you figure out how to do it. Because I'll tell you what, as a boss, I need clarity. If somebody tells me exactly what they need so they can do their job, I am a happy boss. Let me take that a bit further because you've seen a lot of, um, I know we're going to get to the leader follower model here in a minute, but just staying up positive power for a minute, you witnessed and you've watched people go through that. Which are the ones that you go, man, they got it. They understand it. They get it. They commit to it. They're going to be better as a result. And which are the ones that kind of, boy, they're really going to struggle with this. They really haven't, haven't embedded it in their head. Is there some trend there between effective and ineffective um, in terms of leadership that you've seen as a result of coming through the training? Well, one of the biggest barriers for learning the PPI program is the ego. You know, if somebody has a really strong ego and they don't want to listen to feedback, they need to be right, that kind of thing, they're going to struggle with the program. They're not going to want to hear that feedback. Um, The people that really jump on board, uh, take the feedback, play with it, uh, play with it outside of the program. You know, we can have people go to a program if it's a face-to-face program uh, and it's a three-day program, they come back the second morning and go, I tried this last night with my family. And so, you know, they're on track. Yeah. You know, they're doing it. They're going to do it. Or, you know, my boss called me and I used the listening skills with my boss and it worked really well. You know, people. some people will just immediately be doing it. Some people need proof in the pudding. Everybody learns differently. Some people need to read about it. Some people need to go out and play with it. You know, and then some people just aren't aren't going to do it until, you know, <laughs> I had this one guy that went to multiple, you know, several of our programs. And he used to say, yep, love the program. Great experience. I would go home and put the binder on the shelf. Um, and then I'd get into this situation. I'd go, what did Sherry say? And he'd pull out the binder and look at it again. So it got triggered by the situation that he found himself in that he needed to go back to the book and say, okay, what do I need to do? So everybody learns differently and everybody's ready at different points in their life. I think we've got a lot of hungry people though. Right now, I think the world is ready for what we do in a much different way. I think we have a lot of people who have felt so isolated and alone that reaching out and connecting is a critical part of health. And they know that now. Um, So coming together, instead of you know, really going into this divisiveness that's here on the planet right now. And there's quite a bit of it. Um, If people choose to see what they share, what they have in common, I think people are ready for that. Yeah, I'd like to take that a bit further. Uh, There's a lot of folks uh, focus and appropriately so on diversity, equality, inclusion. Uh, When you look at this, I I get the training, having been through it and trained it. uh, But are there 
are there substantial differences about how men influence versus women or vice versa um, that you've observed that one could learn from the other? It, it's interesting because I'm recertifying all our trainers. So they all have to come in and, and we do track exercises. We do these exercises yeah. together where they have to really work all the styles. And we actually had a conversation about emotion with men and women. And this is just an interesting sort of nugget of it, but there is different ways. It's, it's gross generalizations, yeah, of but you know, women tend to pull more than men tend to push more. Um, but uh, one of the things that we t determined about emotion is if a man shows emotion, he's considered weak. Right. If a woman uh, shows emotion, she's considered unstable. We have a really difficult time telling each other what we feel and understanding what the other is talking about, especially in intimate relationships, without feeling like we're being attacked. So we're, we really do a terrible job of being able to talk about what we feel to each other. And so one of the things that would really help, obviously, is the bridging style. Disclose what you feel without using it as a way to beat up the other person. Don't slap other people with your emotions. Um, uh, listen to what the other person is saying. Listen for those feelings. And that gets you towards empathy. And when we get to empathy, we're connecting. Right on. Right on. Um, let me ask you a question on um, your business, Sherry, just for a minute. I mean, listen, COVID has been... Um, so destructive in many ways, but it's also been instructive, I think, for businesses. Um, uh, several of the businesses that we have in our portfolio are coming out of it stronger because they use the COVID pandemic as a way to kind of reset their thinking on their business. Um, when you think about your own, what were the challenges you've encountered? And then how did you overcome them or how did you mitigate them? Or what changes do you foresee as a result of going through the pandemic with your, with your business and your operation? So most of our business was face-to-face -face training programs. Um, so initially we lost basically all of our business. Uh, we had actually been doing virtual training since 2012. Uh, we'd done our first virtual training program, I think with the World Bank. And they, the way we did it was they flew me down to DC and I got on their intranet and did a training program on their intranet. So that was our first virtual training program. Um, there were a couple of clients that I'd done virtual trainings with. Uh, Procter & Gamble was one. Um, another one was DNV, uh, Denorske Veritas. And so Denorske Veritas had already been offering virtual programs. So we had some people in place to already be set up to do virtual programs. So we were able to stay in with those. I mean, we had to do the government assistance stuff. Um, and now we're just still working with people to understand that this, you know, the virtual world can work really well, that people just have to remember that you're in a room and just act like you would if you were in the room with somebody. So, you know, you, you use the body language, you use the tone of voice, you, you choose your words just as carefully as you would if you were sitting across from the person. So um, I think we are uniquely um, positioned to really help people take advantage of the flexibility of virtual training. I mean, this group that I just finished with today, uh, they had people from all over the world. So they were enabling a stronger connection with their gl global network of people um, through the training program. The training actually builds very strong relationships with people. So I think, um, I think because we've invested a lot in uh, understanding the design and understanding what it takes for a virtual delivery um, that you know, we will, we will, uh, you know, persevere out of it, but it's, yeah, it's taking a little bit longer than we would like, but uh, we're hanging in there. Yeah. Well, again, if I can give you a plug, I think, you know, the normal take up on this uh, webcast is 10 or 11,000 people see it. So I'm going to say it once more as a little plug for you and your business, which is, it is by far the best training I've been through. It's foundational. It helps you in so many different ways, both from a relationship standpoint, from an influence standpoint, being more effective in the workplace, being more effective in your personal life. And it's stuff that you have recall on. You know, my, measure, my measuring stick is, can I use it a week later, month later, a year later? In your case, 25, 30 years later, you still have the same model. I have it ingrained in my head and I use it always frequently. So 
for those of you that are listening, you know, we've got the world's expert on influence situational management systems, positive and power influence is the training. It's virtual. Go look up Sherry. Now, that's my plug. Uh, I Thank wanted you, to, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, uh, you returned to academia after a very successful career in running your own business, which is a big choice. What prompted you to do that? <laughs> so um, my bachelor's degree is in economics and law. Uh, my master's degree was done by research. Both, the, both my bachelor's and master's were done in Great Britain because uh, I lived over there for about eight years. And so my master's was, is called an MPhil in management research. So it was done completely by research. Hmm. And when I came back, there was a PPI trainer because I started training the PPI program, um, Leo. And Leo was an adjunct professor for Fielding uh, Graduate University. And he said to me, if you liked what you did with complete research, you should go to Fielding. So I took, got some information on Fielding, put it in my file drawer, and then 25 years later, I woke up and I said, okay, it's time. And part of it was, was that um, I felt like we needed more uh, energy infused into the organization. We were research-based from the beginning, and there hadn't been any um, recent research done. And so I really wanted to, to infuse that type of energy back into what we were doing and back into our whole way of thinking. Um, so I was excited. And... You know, I'm one of those weird people that loved the whole process. I um, loved sitting in my office in my house, staring out my window and thinking. And my husband would come in and look at me and go, uh, working hard, huh? I said, I am. I'm thinking. <laughs> you know? So because it changes the way you think. When you read as much as I read, when you try to put together, um, and, and this is one of the skills of women, is we, we're integrators. So we integrate information in a way that's very different. Men tend to compartmentalize uh, stuff. Yeah. Women integrate. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to integrate a lot of stuff together. In fact, one of my professors says, Sherry never met a theory she didn't like. You know, so, um, you know, I just looked at this whole relationship and said, okay, if I had to really talk about this whole picture, what would it look like? And it's complex, <clears throat> you know, given that you've got, you know, <laughs> social theories, you've got psychological theories, you've got biological theories, you've got quantum physics in there. <laughs> you've got just about anything, you know, uh, chaos, adaptive systems theory. There's all kinds of stuff that plays a part of this whole relationship. And, you know, we're all just sitting out here thinking, oh, you know, relationships, it's okay. <laughs> They're very complex. Mm -hmm. Very complex. And, and you centered your research on, on, on leader follower, which I'm kind of intrigued by because I think leadership independent has been overstudied. I mean, every year there's another leadership book that comes out, but it misses the key point, which is the whole connection with followers. How do you create what that relationship is? How do you sustain it? All that stuff, which you center on, and you develop this concept of implicit social elements. Tell us about that. So one of the things, um, the reason why we keep having leadership uh, books is because we keep having leadership failure <clears throat> and leadership failure isn't in most cases isn't a failure to do it's a failure of relationships and so I see it as three entities I see it as you've got the leader you've got the follower and then you've got this thing called the relationship and there's all this stuff that goes into building that relationship and so the implicit social elements is what I was referring to earlier about some of the unconscious stuff that goes into our heads. And so we have expectations about people, whether they're a leader, a follower, a female, a male, you know, pink and polka dotted, whatever it is, we have this whole catalog of things in our brain that say that person's acceptable, that person's not. And it's not even that clear. We just are drawn to or pushed away from certain people. And we don't even really know why. We can come up with explanations and say, well, you know, they twitched the wrong way. And so, you know, this is really challenging us to say, okay, you have to, it's a forced social relationship. I mean, that's a critical thing that you have to understand. Leaders and followers are a forced social relationship within a structure that I may or may not fit really well into. 
you know, and if I don't feel what fit well into the culture of the organization, which is, you know, all different pieces make the culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I'm not going to be successful in that organization unless I can figure out why I don't fit. Um, but, you know, until we acknowledge that we have biases for and against people for whatever reason, that they're unconscious, and that these are some of the elements that you need in an organization to create thriving relationships. You create thriving relationships in your organization. Your culture is going to be unbelievably positive and your results are going to go through the roof. And that's because people will not be sidetracked by talking about how badly they were treated, you know, or what's going wrong in the organization. They'll stay focused on the goal and they'll get it done because they feel respected, acknowledged, all those pieces that everybody wants um, from their relationships with people. So the implicit social elements are a critical piece. I mean, who doesn't want reciprocity? That's a piece of every um, relationship where I'm hired. It's a transactional part of the relationship. There's going to be a transactional part. You know, but the other side of it is, is that what the manager gets out of it is, is reputation. Because if, if that manager or that leader has a lot of good relationships, people talk. And so their status increases in the organization because they're known as a good leader. And more people want to work for that person. Um, yeah. Interesting. I do a lot of executive search now, sharing One of the proof point questions I always ask is, when you've left company X to go to company Y, who went with you? <laughs> and the really good leaders will say, I was very selective, but John, Harry, Susan, they came with me. Uh, when I was at this company, I pulled another two out, uh, which was indicative of a successful leader that created really important relationships for followers that wanted to repeat that in, in another yeah. another culture. The the not so good ones to say, uh, I don't know why you're asking me that. I, I would never pull anybody from the company I work at. And my follow would always be, always be is that a matter of principle? Uh, no, it's just I never thought about pulling anybody from the company I worked at. So I was like, <laughs> okay, we'll turn the page on that one. <laughs> Next question. Uh, yeah. And why do you why do you think there's uh, there's uh, such uh, such an emphasis you mentioned on leadership that it's a failure relationship. Why haven't we been able to, why haven't we been able to crack that as business? Because um, I still hear the same stuff in business that I heard forty years ago. It's all about leadership. It's about taking the hill. It's uh, making a difference, making a personal difference. Um, you don't hear a lot about still, even though I think it's so relevant of creating organizations that are connected that are respectful, they're inclusive, you feel like you're included, feel you can bring your whole self, that um, it's changing, but it feels glacially slow. Uh, Now, that might be my perspective from the outside in, and I might be getting past my sell-by date in business, but I just don't feel like we're making a lot of progress, as much progress as I would think we, we should be making. Is that a pessimist view, or how do you see it? You know, I think there's pockets. I think there are people who um, really value the people that work for them and want to create a good environment. Um, It's so driven. We've got some older organizations. They're stuck in their ways, stuck in their habits. And you know what it's like to change an organization. You know, some of these huge companies, you got to get success in a small part of the organization and then it kind of affects the rest of the organization, right? You can't just, okay, we're going to change the organization today. It's like, yeah, right. Um, So I think that it's the same problem we've always had with people understanding the positive parent influence program Mm -hmm. is that if you stopped and looked at your organization and said, what is the cost of broken relationships? What is the cost of, um, you know, when you've got, a manager that is berating people? What is the cost of an egotistical salesperson just beating the crap out of administrative people? You know, they've got all of these things, but do you as an organization ever look at that cost? Mm -hmm. And they don't because it would be staggering. It would be absolutely staggering to stop and say, how much does this cost us when we fail people in this way? They don't want to look at it. 
Nobody wants to look at it. I mean, can you imagine what that study would be, Dennis? Can you imagine going into an organization and saying, let's see how much time it costs managers to deal with people issues or some of these problems. And in some organizations, it's a lot. Yeah. You know, their, their cultures are poison. They're horrible. You know, in some organizations, it's a lot better. So there's yeah. some very forward-thinking organizations. There are some that do great. Um, it just depends on, you know, how important do people really balance out the performance of the organization with the experience of people working for them? And is that just as important? Yeah. And, and in most the, places, it's not. And one of the lessons that P&G gave me, not, not to harp on them, but it was a formative experience around, you got measured on two things, building the business and, underline, building the organization. Those things had to go together. Uh, I have to say that company did it better than most. Uh, others would express it, but would rarely act on it as well. But, you know, I, I, what I found uh, in my tenure, uh, particularly my CHRO jobs at other companies, is that you can ask a few questions, get to the root of it. Like I always do in, on an employee opinion survey, what percent of time do you work at your full potential? <laughs> one, one company, it was 63%. And management thought that was a good score because it was above 50. And I said, well, let's back this up a minute. That means I'm not a math major, but, you know, fully almost 40% of your population doesn't work at their peak. And you take that 40% loss in productivity, giving your yeah. all to the business enterprise, times the number of people we have in the company, that's another Fortune 500 company. Wouldn't yeah. we want to go fix that? Or yeah. Glassdoor. When you go on that, you see what people write and you get a two, three or two, four out of five. Why would you, why would you let that go? So I think companies are getting a little bit smarter on that, but um, I wanted to get you, I wanted to ask, ask you also on millennials because they're a, given I got two of them, you get, you got a couple as well. Uh, they're pushing organizations to be better. Um, now it looks a little choppy. I, I would submit and some of the stuff sometimes it looks a little, uh, as the Brits would say, NAF. Uh, but one only needs to look at the help wanted signs in, in businesses today where people are voting with their feet or saying, you know, listen, it's not worth me coming back. It's not a health issue. It's more of a likability issue. I just choose not to come back. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think um, What do you think companies fundamentally need to do to be more appealing to the millennial population, which has been encultured as, hey, if you don't get it there, go get it someplace else. Don't hook your wagon to one horse that might disappoint you, get a lot of variety of experience. And companies struggle with that, obviously, and retention levels have continued to decline a lot of industries. How do you counteract that? What, 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 what would you recommend? Well, it's back to the whole experience in the organization, you know, what's the experience walking in the door? Because honestly, day one of somebody's role in a job or, you know, the first day in a job, they're going to be forming opinions of the company just as much as the company is forming opinions of them. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, your first three months in a company is going to set your reputation in that company. So you got to be aware of those first three months. Well, it's the same thing for the company. You know, if somebody's dissatisfied right off the bat, you got to take a look and talk to them and find out what's going on. It's those relationships. It's connecting with them. It's talking to them about what it would be. Um, but then the flip side of it is, is that, you know, you can have somebody come in and say, oh, this is my dream job. I want to be here. I want to be here. And then they give in their notice three years later because, oh, well, this was actually my dream job. <laughs> so it can be a case of, both ways, you know, that it doesn't matter what you do, they're going to move on. Yeah. So just be aware that you're going to invest a certain amount of money in getting people trained up. And as soon as they're ready to, you know, start really being functional for you, they're gone. Um, but there's also those that are going to want the security of staying in the job and being able to see where they can go. And so if you really connect with people, if you really want people um, you've got to have those good, strong relationships where you have open conversations about what's working and what's not working. It's those constant touch points. Yeah. And, and one of the ones I always used to measure was um, a question, do you expect to be here next year? It's a <laughs> fundamental question, but it's like, do you, yeah. you know, do you expect it? And, you know, when you got 12, 15% of your organization saying likely not, that yeah. should be a big flashing red light. Um, 
I want to ask you on uh, pandemic and connectedness. I'm I'm uh, reading a lot of what companies are doing. You know, some are taking the line, which is, hey, September 1st, you need to be back in the chair in the office. Others are saying, hey, listen, you, you can work from home forever. And I don't know what the right mix is, to be honest, but I'm curious about this connectedness that happens inside organizations on a face-to-face basis, the glue that binds us together, the culture that gets created, that gets uh, nurtured and, and reinforced. If you're working virtually for an extended period of time, how do you counteract or how do you create that glue, that connectedness, that relationship-based intimacy that you get face-to-face? Have you found uh, methods that allow companies to operate on a virtual basis for an extended period of time and not have face-to-face that build tight, vibrant cultures? Because I think that ultimately is a decision point that businesses are going to have to wrestle with over the next 12, 18 months or in the future. You know, it's, in my mind, if you can connect with people face-to-face, you can connect with them virtually. Um, Because just because this is a screen, you know, you feel my energy, you feel you know, if I'm getting intense or you feel you can, you can look at me, you can look at my body language, you can see what's going on. So one of the things that, that I encourage people to do, and I think it's, I think it's a learning is just because you've got this screen, you know, and you've got the Brady Bunch going on, just because that's got the screen doesn't mean you sit there like this the whole time. You know, act like you would if you were face to face with each other, you know, talk like you would. You know, you come in, you usually have a little bit of banter up front, do the banter, you know, act normally like you would if you were, just because this is a screen doesn't mean we're not connecting, doesn't mean that we can't really get where each other's at. And, and you've just got to start noticing if somebody's being reticent, if they're keeping the camera off, you know, all that kind of stuff, then you reach out to them. There's a lot more reaching out that you can do. So there's this normalization of this can be normal. Okay, this, this whole interaction can be normal just because it's virtual doesn't mean it can't be normal. Um, but the difference is, is that when we're together in, a, in an office space, we can notice if somebody's feeling a little bit down or we can notice if somebody's feeling excited and we can go to them and say, you know, you look really excited, what's going on? So you just have to just decide that you're going to connect with everybody and say, hey, what's going on for you? Help me understand more. So it's more deliberate um, because you can't see somebody at the water fountain. Um, it's more deliberate reaching out to people and saying, hey, let's just talk about what's up. We don't, no particular objective. Let's have some coffee online today. You know, and a lot of, so a lot of the, the training programs uh, will, are starting to build in. Like there's one particular client, Denorska Veritas, they started building in coffee time um, as part of it. So, okay, everybody go get a cup of coffee. Let's just chat, you know. And, and you could have little breakout sessions where different, different people could go Virtually, and just yeah. chat with yeah. different people. So, um, you know, again, it takes more intentionality um, in terms of wanting to reach out and connect with people, but you just got, it's just got to be a part of the way that you do it. You know, what we noticed, uh, Sherry, this is, this is um, I don't know if it's valid, but this is an observation nonetheless is that people that normally wouldn't participate in a physical meeting participate more on a virtual basis, particularly women. And I haven't, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I think it kind of goes like, hey, if I'm in a meeting room and I start talking, all eyes get trained on me and I can feel it. I can feel the burn, as it were, or the, <laughs> you know, and, and so you get really, uh, I'm not going to venture out in that ice again. So you kind of close up. Yeah. Whereas in the virtual, there's a little bit of anonymity because you're on with a, the Brady Bunch, another 15, yeah. 20 people, yeah. uh, all kind of equalized, normalized to some extent. Um, have you seen that? Because that's what I've observed, not to a large extent, but enough to be noticeable, that there's more participation of those that wouldn't normally, and I'm thinking younger people from a hierarchical standpoint, than it would be in a traditional office face-to-face meeting. You know, I haven't experienced that. Dennis, because, you know, I don't let anybody sort of sit aside and not talk <laughs> in the stuff that I do. Ever, I, I draw everybody out. And, you know, I'll have just as many men as women keeping their camera off or shutting off their yeah. microphone. I'll be like, oh, no, 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 come on. 
Yep. Come on, turn that on. I need to see yeah. you. So, but um, I can see that there would be a logic behind it, um, mm -hmm. that there is more safety in this picture, um, that there's that distance. Um, and, you know, you also have to remember that women in some ways are going to be reticent as leaders uh, to step up and stand out because they end up with a bullseye on their back. So, yep. you know, it's, it's one of those things. So um, if that's what you're seeing, I think that's great. Yeah, it's, 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 again, I don't know if it's a trend. It, it's certainly enough for me to notice. Um, the other question I want to ask you is, I want to go back to the implicit social homes for a minute. You've written the book. You're developing some workshops and materials. What's, what's that going to look like? How does that build upon the PPI program? So um, what I've developed is actually a tool. Um, and... So the implicit social elements are implicit, right? So you can't ask somebody a question about them and go, hey, what do you think about trust? Whenever anybody fills out uh, a questionnaire based on any of the elements, like trust or fairness or anything, everybody rates themselves high. Oh, I'm a trusting person. Oh, I'm a fair person. Everybody thinks they're high with it. Um, so I created a tool um, that actually is little vignettes. And each vignette, um, you read the vignette, and then there's three optional outcomes and you choose one of those options. And so what ends up happening is we get to see which one of these options. So there, there's like 21 of those. So there's three for each one of the implicit social elements. And then there's seven questions about the relationship. So the output is, is that you get a, a score um, between zero and five for the quality of the leader follower relationship within an organization and you get to see, so it's statistically analyzed. I have, we had to develop our own statistical process for this because it had this actual tool has not been used this way um, before. It's a situational judgment test. And you know, those get used in selection a lot. Um, and so, but this was in a particular, this is used in a particular way that's different. Um, so I have my own statistician. And um, so we, we crunched the numbers and you actually come up with a score and then which one of the implicit social elements are related to that. So it's an organizational cultural assessment tool uh, potentially leading to change. Uh, and that change is driven by um, a number of things. So it's, you basically look at it as an org change process. And so, um, you know, you put a team together, you figure out what you want to focus on. So for example, um, let's say that uh, respect came up for the organization. We say, okay, how do we talk about respect? How do we look at respect as an organization? Because what happens is a lot of people do this values work, right? You know this as a CHR, yeah. right? A lot of people do, these are the values of the organization. People need more than that. And so I've actually even designed um, some positive parent influence program exercises that help people look at how do I show respect? Um, how do I build trust? How do I talk about fairness? Because all of these things are difficult. I mean, look at fairness. Everybody's got a different a definition different of fairness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody looks at it differently. So you can't please everybody, right? Um, but at least if you have the conversation, if you start having the conversations, it starts to build people's ability to um, think about those things within the organization. So it really is a culture change org change process. Um, and again, like anything else, you got to start with a part of the organization that would be really open to it and have, enjoy doing it. So the tool needs at least, uh, I think our uh, threshold is at least 200 people to fill it out um, in order for the statistics to work. Okay, that's helpful because, you know, a lot of the, uh, listen, I've been through my ad nauseum number of value exercises over my tenure most of it is and ends up that you're being told what the values are right as opposed to an exploration about what's important relative to those values and what does that really what does it look like when it's fully in bloom like respect uh, yeah. for example or trust um, or fairness to your point that discussion and dialogue yields the culture you're trying to create as opposed to we're going to bring you into a room, we're going to t tell you what the values are, and then you're going to go out and you're going to you're going to exercise against that. It's like it doesn't work. It's like this is what we hope will happen. Um, 
and uh, you know the the interesting thing about this is um, that it can also be different in different parts of the organization depending on the leadership in that organization. So you can do it for the whole organization, or you can you know, you know, whatever your silos are, whether they're business units or functions or whatever, you can look at all of those separately and separate those out and get an analysis of each part of the organization. And the nice part about it is, is that it doesn't hold out any particular leader because you say, okay, these, these levels in the organization are going to fill this out as a leader and these are going to fill, fill it out as a follower. Yeah. And so you get to look at it between leader and follower because, you know, a lot of people are both leaders and followers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you get that information and then we do whatever demographics the organization feels comfortable with. So you can do gender, age, nationality, all that kind of stuff, whatever demographics you want to push in there, we can play with the statistics on it, you know? So, um, again, it, it can yield you a lot of information. Um, and so the question is, and it's the first upfront thing is what do you want to do with this information? Because mm -hmm. there's no sense in putting the organization through that. If you're, I mean, it takes 15 minutes to fill it out, right? So it's not, it's very quick and we don't want people thinking about it. Um, the whole point about situational judgment test is, is people just go with whatever the first answer is. That's what we ask them to do. Um, so it's a very quick test. It's like 15 minutes. Some people fill it out in less time. Um, but you get some real interesting information out of it. Um, but I think it's um, information that up until this point, I think organizations are afraid to look at. Yeah. Which is kind of my, a segue to my uh, last question for you, Sherry, is, um, again, not to get too philosophical, but just kind of interested in your view, given you've spent a lot of time uh, assessing, trying to understand the human condition. Pessimist or optimist? Well, you know, one of my uh, ongoing beliefs that I've had for a very long time, Dennis, is that every single human being is doing the best that they can given who they are at this point in time. So I guess that makes me an optimist. Rock on. Uh, I like that. That's exactly, that's my view too. There's a, there's enough pessimists in the world. Uh, we don't need any more of those. We need optimists that can see the lightness in the dark and do something about it. Um, wherever that might be, whatever vantage point they have, whatever position they have in, in their life. But there needs to be more optimist than pessimist. Um, I've kind of quit watching news programs because it seems like it grinds on the, the negative and the pessimistic aspect of humans. It's like, there's, there's got to be some fundamental goodness out there, which is kind of where I want to end up. Again, I want to, I want to thank you. And I want to plug again for uh, those listeners. This lady here is the best there is around uh, this seminal program, um, Positive Power and Influence. If you've not been through it, look it up online. It's virtual. And so there's no excuses. And then I'm really interested in learning more. Uh, and if you're kind enough, Sherry, I can integrate this into the video on the ICE. If, if you want to give a little bit more there to kind of mark what you do, because if it's, if it's even slightly on par with positive influence, positive power and influence is going to be a great thing. So I appreciate, appreciate you. Appreciate you joining. Good seeing you after God. Many years. years. Woo, years. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. I, I really loved being here and talking to you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you Likewise. so much. Well, maybe we'll get on the travel circuit or the virtual circuit. We'll do some training together at some point. That will be fun. Sounds, sounds good. All right. Hey, be well. Have a nice weekend and good seeing you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye, Sherry. Bye. -bye,